Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I suspect like most of all of you, I am both shaken and awed by the close calls that we have witnessed in the past week. It's been a frightening and fascinating week in air travel, a fiery runway collision in Tokyo with textbook though perhaps slow evacuation of a wide-body Airbus A350, and a scary fuselage break and sudden depressurization of a very new Boeing 737 MAX 9 near Portland, Oregon. We have several very important topics to discuss this week, Ben Baldanza. We do, Scott. The great news is that no lives were lost on passenger airlines, though our hearts go out to the families of the Japanese Coast Guard crew members killed in the runway accident in Tokyo and possibly some indirect lives lost because they were going to help the earthquake effort. Mm. And the important thing is that the industry studies these events closely. We have to continue to learn and improve I think it's a really important point, the most important point, because this industry is so safe and these these accidents are shocking. The Japanese accident is really the first fatal airline accident we've had in years. So it's important to remember how safe the industry is, and it is so safe because we continue to learn and improve. And I think we're going to learn a lot, Ben, out of these two incidents. I think there will be significant improvement that comes out of both the runway accident in Tokyo and the door plug that came off the Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9. Fortunately, in that event, no one was sitting by the window or the middle seat in the row where the fuselage suddenly opened. I think they were lucky that nobody was seriously injured in that one. Before we get into the details of the two close calls, let's close the book on 2023 airline performance, at least in terms of reliability, because there are some very interesting findings for airlines and for passengers. Sirium's annual on-time performance review is out, and on-time performance is something I have always tracked closely. It not only matters to passengers, but it also gives a very clear indication of how an airline is running. A lot has to go right to be on time, crews, maintenance, planning, etc., you can tell a lot about an airline by its cancellation rate and on-time arrival rate. And Ben, I know it's very important to you since you're a member of Sirium's independent on-time performance advisory board. So drumroll, the winner, Delta. 
Delta was tops in on-time arrivals for the year at 84.72%, a truly remarkable number since Delta flew 1.6 million flights last year and operates at many of the most congested and air traffic control challenged airports in the world. Alaska was number two at 82%. And surprisingly, I think, American was number three. United was number four, and Southwest was number five. The biggest airlines performed the best, at least in terms of on-time arrivals. There are a whole lot of other factors in airline performance. The rankings I created at the Wall Street Journal add in cancellations, baggage handling, tarmac delays, very long delays, bumping passengers, and consumer complaints to give a more thorough evaluation of reliability. But on-time is the first and you might argue, very important look at how airlines performed last year. Overall in North America, the average on-time arrival rate was 74.45%, according to Sirium, which was slightly better than 2022. There were 400,000 more flights in North America in 2023 compared to 2022. So good job, airlines. I have a couple other thoughts on the data about the Sirium report, Ben. But what's your overall takeaway from the on-time performance numbers? Well, congratulations to Delta. And I think what this means, Scott, is that the industry is operating normally again. No talks of people shortages or plain shortages relative to the schedule being flown. So now it's whether that on time can turn into sustained profits for an industry that needs it. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about block time because that does get turned into profits. Um, My two other thoughts on the Sirium report. First, that block time matters. Airlines schedule flights based on how long they think it will take. It's an inexact science based on tons and tons of data, history, seasonal winds, typical airport delays at a given arrival or departure time, taxi times, you name it, it's measured. And an airline can pad those block times to boost its on-time arrival rate. It's very expensive. Crews often get paid the higher of planned or actual trip time. More padding reduces aircraft utilization and may mean you need more very expensive jets to fly the same number of trips each day. The on-time standard is gate arrival within 14 minutes of scheduled time. The DOT counts flights that arrive 15 minutes after scheduled time as late, but 14 minutes is counted as on time. So there's an interesting comparison here to be made. Delta, which got nearly 85% of its flights to the gate within the DOT 14-minute cushion, actually had 80.29% of its flights arrive at the gate within its own prescribed block time. Block times were pretty close to actual results. Number two, Alaska had an on-time rate only a couple of percentage points behind Delta, but its flights arrived within its block time only 65% of the time. 
Block times were not as close to actual, but close enough for Alaska to put up some very good DOT arrival rate numbers using the 14-minute cushion. That suggests Delta is more generous with its block time compared to Alaska. And that makes sense if your biggest concentration of flights is in Atlanta, the biggest airport in the world, and you have significant operations in cities that historically have lots of delays. You better plan for that. Build it into your block times. Alaska has its weather challenges in Seattle and up in Alaska, but it's largely a West Coast airline where flying is often not as congested and weather not as challenging as the East Coast. Flying can be more predictable there, so block times may not need to account for as many unexpected delays. American Southwest and United, interestingly, were all right around 72 to 74% arrivals within block time. So compared with Delta, the spread between the DOT standard and their own block times was fairly similar. In other words, their padding probably isn't much different than Delta's. Delta just performed a bit better in on-time arrivals. American and Southwest could improve their numbers by adding block time, but they'd pay a price for that. The second thought is that the cancellation rate at most U.S. airlines was very impressive with one significant outlier. To me, cancellation rates are almost more important than on-time rates from a customer's perspective because being late stinks, but getting canceled really stinks. The U.S. airline that canceled the lowest percentage of flights may shock you. Southwest, 99.38% of Southwest scheduled flights flew last year, so a cancellation rate of only 0.62%. After the previous year's holiday meltdown, that is a fantastic achievement and really demonstrates how much Southwest really did fix its operation. So Southwest cancellation rate was slightly better than Alaska's, which had a cancellation rate of 0.65%. Outstanding. American was right around 1%. And Delta, which really was the airline that pioneered low cancellation rates, was at 1.18%. The industry, in other words, has caught up to Delta in reliability. And special kudos to American after years and years of painfully lagging behind. United and JetBlue, which suffered from a lot of storms and air traffic control issues in New York, came in around 1.7 to 1.8%, still below the 2% that is considered acceptable, kind of an industry standard. The most painful number in the whole report may have been Frontier's cancellation rate at 6.57% last year. Yes, I said 6.57% last year. That's so much worse than other airlines and maybe even more excruciating for many passengers in markets where Frontier has only a handful of flights each week. That's a big black eye that customers need to be aware of. Good run through, Scott. You know, you make interesting points about block time. Airlines think of this all the time, and they schedule to a specific block target. It's not just what happens, it's what they plan to. For example, I bet, though I don't know for sure, 
the frontier schedules to what's called a 50% block. That means half their flights would arrive within their block time and half won't. 50% is low, but it's what some low-cost airlines use to keep all the costs lower. And in Frontier's case, I don't know how they handle all those cancels since they have such a thin schedule. They can't do much for those customers. It's really a challenge and something they need to fix. Long ago at Spirit, we had a joke that maybe we wouldn't even publish actual arrival times, but would just say you'll get there in time for lunch or something <laughs> like that. And we laughed about it. But of Love course, it. we didn't do that. <laughs> That'd be great. You could have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, and no sleep. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I was really struck at how similar uh, United American and Southwest were. Uh, clearly sort of uh, assuming it worked out as they planned, uh, scheduling right around 75% block time arrival or so, and uh, and Delta at 80%. And, and Delta may be more generous uh, with its block time, and that, that has been part uh, of its success. Um, I, I've never seen that as, as cheating or anything else. Uh, if it, if it takes you that long to get there, um, then, then that's how you ought to schedule. Um, to, to me, the cheating part is, is scheduling an airline knowing that, that 75% of the time you're not going to get there uh, by your published time. Um, so maybe, maybe, uh, just saying you get there by lunch, um, is a much more honest way to do it. Well, and it's more than just block time. Delta has an older fleet that they don't schedule for as high utilization. And they have terrific tech ops that keeps the planes moving. So the whole company is built to be reliable beyond just the block time. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. It's, uh, I just find this stuff fascinating. I hope listeners do too. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they're committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology 
cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we'd want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, as we just talked about, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Okay, let's talk about the Tokyo crash first. A Japan Airlines A350, Flight 516 from Sapporo, collided with a smaller Coast Guard turboprop in the dark on runway 34 right at Haneda Airport. Five of the six on board the Coast Guard plane were killed. Despite intense fire, all 367 passengers and 12 crew members on the A350 evacuated safely. The cause of the accident most likely will be multifaceted. It's almost always a chain of events that leads to fatal accidents. And if you could have broken that chain somewhere along the way, you might have avoided the accident. According to NOTAMs at the airport, runway stop bar lights weren't functioning at the time of the accident. That may be one factor. There will be others. While the surviving pilot of the Coast Guard plane reportedly told investigators he had clearance to taxi onto the runway, recordings of air traffic control conversations suggest the Coast Guard plane was only cleared to a holding point on a taxiway. The Coast Guard plane was also told it was number one for departure, and it acknowledged that, perhaps leading to pilot confusion about whether they were cleared to move into position on the runway. It's also not clear why the Coast Guard pilots didn't see the wide body on short final before entering the runway. Runway incursions have been a serious safety concern, not only in the U.S., but also around the world. And here we have the exact scenario that has caused so much concern. I think one lesson is that we clearly need more technology to alert pilots and controllers when two planes are about to be on the same runway. Now let's focus on the GAL evacuation. The crew appears to have responded in textbook fashion, instructing passengers and executing the evacuation without serious injury. Only three of the eight exits were used in the emergency. The others were blocked by fire. And kudos to the crew for not opening a door that would send people into the fire and invite fire into the cabin. That's a huge risk. Passengers appear to have left their carry-ons behind as instructed. That's a big factor in evacuations and something we haven't seen in previous uh, evacuations where everybody's carrying everything they can uh, strap onto their back. And since the aircraft public announcement system had failed in the crash, instructions had to be yelled by flight attendants and delivered with megaphones. And most importantly, The decades of work on fire retardant materials and aircraft components that don't give off toxic fumes and smoke clearly saved lives. There is so much here. Fuel tanks filled with nitrogen to reduce flammability, carpet, ceiling tiles, overhead bins, everything in the cabin designed 
to be fire resistant and when it does burn, not give off fumes that would incapacitate people. And the carbon fiber fuselage of the A350 held up long enough to evacuate. This was the first major commercial airplane fiery crash of a composite airplane. And it seems to have performed in spectacular fashion. But now the hard question, did the evacuation take too long? The last crew member left the airplane 18 minutes after touchdown. So was this a success because the cabin was slow to burn and gave everyone time to live? Or should we consider it a problem that it took so long? I say both. We have made great strides in survivability, and we can get better. Aircraft are certified to a 90-second evacuation standard using only half of the existing exits. Everybody needs to be able to get off in 90 seconds. Those certification tests get criticized as not very realistic. Track stars in the seats. Everybody knows they're getting out. Uh, it's, it's very orderly. There's not panic. Maybe it's, it's not a, a, a real-world test. And I think the point is, it's not a real-world test, but I think the standard is a really good one. In real-world emergencies, people have gotten out and survived over and over again over the last decade or more. Recall the Asiana crash in San Francisco where an airplane cartwheeled down the runway and burned. The only two fatalities were people not wearing seatbelts who were thrown from the airplane. Yes, in the real world, passengers don't get out in 90 seconds. That's not realistic. But the standard is tough enough so that planes are designed to give passengers and crews enough time to escape. And the fire retardant measures have saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives. Could it be faster than 18 minutes? Should it be? Yeah, I think it should. There is much to study here, and I would hope changes will come that can make sure planes evacuate more rapidly. We have to continue to improve, but let's also celebrate what an achievement it is for an aircraft with almost 400 people to suffer a collision on landing, burn completely, and yet everybody survives. It's not a miracle, but it is remarkable. It's the result of decades of hard work, billions of dollars invested in safety, and professional crew training and bravery. Great analysis, Scott. I agree completely. This crew needs huge kudos. When I saw pictures of that plane, my first thought was, how many people died when I saw no one did? I was astounded. It's a big plane, but like you said, the combination of the plane and the crew gave them the time and they used it well. I think this is going to be studied by all airlines as a way to do it right. And how can we do even better? Absolutely. I think we're going to learn a lot out of this. Um, you, you know, accidents are horrible. N never never want to have accidents, um, but... Uh, the, the survivability of these accidents is going to really help make aviation even safer. 
So now, Ben, let's talk about the Max 9 incident. The Max 9 is a longer stretch version of the better-selling Max 7 and Max 8. For airlines that have denser seating configurations on the plane, they need an extra emergency evacuation door. Some airlines even want a door towards the rear of the cabin for passenger boarding and deplaning. U.S. Airlines, Alaska and United are the only ones flying the MAX 9. They don't want either of those things. Since Boeing builds one version of the MAX 9 fuselage, that extra door, which is halfway between the wing and the tail, gets plugged for airlines that don't need it. Inside the cabin, the sidewall covers the door, and passengers don't know there's a door there. It looks like a normal window. From the outside, you can see the door plug. And again, it doesn't even exist on the MAX 8. That's why those airplanes haven't been grounded. This is not a new thing. Manufacturers know how to do door plugs. But the MAX 9 is a new airplane. This one, by the way, had been flown by Alaska for only about two months. The door plug blew out from the fuselage, leaving a major hole. The airplane returned to Portland without passenger injury, and the FAA grounded all MAX 9s that haven't yet reached 4,000 cycles. The door plug gets an inspection anyway after 4,000 cycles. The order covers 171 of the 218 MAX 9s delivered. And the door, by the way, was recovered in the backyard of somebody's house in the Portland area. So is this a Boeing manufacturing quality problem? Was the door plug missing key parts or installed improperly? Is it a design problem? Maybe the seals aren't strong enough or too prone to fail. Was this particular door plug damaged somehow? We don't know and won't know for some time. One clue, I think, is that John Ostrower of the Air Current reported this aircraft had previous pressurization issues. And by the way, John has had important coverage of both events, and we'll have John on next week to learn more. To me, the fact that there were previous pressurization issues suggests a problem with that aircraft and perhaps not a broader design issue. Was the problem at Boeing when the plane was built, or did Alaska Mechanics not properly handle the previous pressurization issues, or both? There's a lot to learn here to make sure this doesn't happen again. This was very scary. Imagine being on that plane Mm -hmm. when effectively a door blows off. Boeing can't catch a break. The MAX has been a cursed airplane since it first came out. There's constant reminders that this design was rushed because of competition with Airbus and effectively is trying to make a 1960s design work for the current world. Of course, the plane can be safe and fly well, and there have been thousands or tens of thousands of safe flights, but 
As the pains get longer, we need to be just as diligent. And it's hard for me to think about what this could mean for Boeing, given the other problems with this plane. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, if, if it turns out to be a result of uh, Boeing cost-cutting, manufacturing mistakes, something that wasn't caught in quality control, um, boy, how many black eyes does it take? Um, there, there have got to be major, major changes at, at Boeing to, to get this ship going. Now, it may turn out to be something else. We, we don't know. Um, but Boeing has had problems recently with uh, loose bolts and tails of some airplanes, um, manufacturing problems with, uh, from the 787, uh, certification problems still going on with the, the Max 7 and the Max 10 haven't even been certified yet to, fl- to fly. So whether it's the result of, of cost cutting or labor problems or poor design, um, uh, you know, I think the, we've talked before about the need for, for a new clean sheet design airplane to replace the 737. Um, there are so many issues at Boeing uh, and it's going to take tremendous leadership and work and maybe a stand down or, or rethinking um, to, um, to really get things in order if this turns out to be a Boeing problem. Yes, and you mentioned it could be an Alaska problem. Right. But they're perceived correctly to be a well-run quality airline. So people aren't going to initially look to them. But the NTSB needs to look at everything, as I'm sure they will. Absolutely. Well, Ben, the mailbag filled up quickly with timely questions and comments. Arun from Dallas writes, Hi, guys. Happy New Year. Wanted to throw my two cents on United most likely becoming the largest airline. This was very predictable starting in summer of 2020. American was the only one of the big three to retire a big chunk of international aircraft, along with 757s that were used for thin international routes from Philadelphia. Delta only retired its Boeing 777s, but then took A350s from LATAM. United doubled down and kept all aircraft and made big orders. Even last week, Vasu Raja talked about Americans' future in domestic and short-haul flying. American seems to be content flying to major international destinations and letting their one-world partners handle the rest of the world. Looking at fleet, American has 126 wide bodies with 30 on order, plus 50 A321 XLRs coming. United has 220 wide bodies and 61 757s with 150 on order, plus 50 A321 XLRs coming. Of course, some of the United orders are replacements for very old 777-200s, but it still shows they want to grow much faster. As you stated, American is much smaller in New York and Los Angeles than they were in 2019, the premier gateways to their respective parts of the world. 
Aaron adds, Scott, on another note, as I write this, Alaska had an issue with their MAX 9 aircraft. Question for you, and maybe for your interview with Boeing coming up, is it time for a Manhattan project for Boeing? This was a company that was run by engineers and focused on quality products. When they merged with McDonnell Douglas, the finance guys took over, and the company hasn't been the same since. A COO who is a finance person isn't the greatest, in my opinion. What do you think? Keep up the good work. Well, Ron, I think we touched on this a little bit before, and some kind of major overhaul at Boeing, you say Manhattan Project, the term I use with air traffic control, uh, I think I think is in order. Um, I, you know, how many incidents do we have to have? How many mistakes have to have to come forward? There are always going to be quality issues with building a giant machine like an airplane that's so complicated. But this uh, seems beyond an acceptable level if this turns out to be yet another manufacturing problem with the Max. I'm not sure who should be running it, but I think you're right. Uh, there was such a focus on quality and safety before at Boeing, and a lot of that has slipped away, and somehow it needs to come back and come back quickly. Well, the point about the McDonald's-Douglas merger has been made before in the talks of the max crashes, and there likely is something there, but that may explain some things, but doesn't change the company's need to get hold of this and do the right things. Finance people still understand the importance of good engineering. I think that's right, Ben. And Stephanie Pope, who's the new chief operating officer, comes from a wide background. Uh, she's had a lot of customer interactions. I think she understands uh, airplanes. I, we don't know if she's the answer, um, but she's definitely going to be on the hot seat. And I would hope that she understands what Boeing needs to do to reclaim confidence um, because uh, airlines are going to look elsewhere if they can't trust Boeing. Okay, Andrew from Ocean City asks a question about the very block time issue we discussed a bit earlier in the podcast. Andrew says, Hi, Ben and Scott. Thank you again for providing insightful perspectives on the airline industry. I was reviewing the numbers for the U.S. carriers in the on-time performance review 2023, which Ben is an advisory board member of, and I noticed that Delta Airlines and Alaska have relatively similar A14, that's arrival within 14 minutes, A14 numbers. Both airlines have very strong on-time performance, but seem to arrive differently at the same answer. It would be interesting to see a stat on what the average block time utilization was per airline as an understanding of block efficiency. Is Delta using 75% of their block while Alaska using 85% of their scheduled block? That's an interesting point. So I figured I'd ask the pros. Andrew, it is interesting. And I think we dove into block time pretty well. I'm glad you raised this question, though. I do think for travelers, block time doesn't mean a whole lot. I think most people want 
in arrival time they can count on, lunchtime, dinner time, as Ben pointed out, um, they plan around that. If it's a few minutes longer because the airline has built in more block time, you know up front and you just focus on the time the airline gives you to arrive. If you arrive early, great. People do think airlines are cheating with block time. I've never bought into that argument, as I said before. Some days you need the block time, some days you don't. Some days you taxi out and you take off quickly from LaGuardia. There aren't many of those days, but they do happen, and many days you don't. My experience on a flight may be completely atypical, but people think if they arrive early, the airline is cheating the schedule. One note, it does take longer these days to get places. Block times are longer because of air traffic control delays, airline complexity, and congestion and other factors. I've got some old schedule books, and if you look in there and you look how long it takes to get from New York to Los Angeles, it's longer today than it was years ago. You'd think technology would speed up air travel, but that hasn't been the case for the most part. As we said before, block time is expensive. If an airline is inefficient, it's going to show up in the earnings. Sometimes airlines need to spend money on block time to get things back in order and then to carve it back out of the schedule once things are back on track. What we know for sure is that this is a low margin business and you better be efficient if you're gonna make money. It's cheaper to run an on-time airline. It's worth investing in tools and people to make your operation run efficiently. That's right, Scott. And we've talked a lot about block time. But another issue we should talk about sometime is turn time, mm. meaning how long is the plane on the ground between flights? I'd be willing to bet that Delta and Alaska's planes stay on the ground longer than most and they recover some time then. Absolutely. Another factor so they can get back on time quicker. Well, we've exhausted our block time once again, but an on-time ending to another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with much more. And hopefully a much quieter week for the industry. Welcome to 2024. So long, everybody. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.